0: The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the portion of Scripture that we read at the beginning, and in the 24th chapter of the Gospel according to St. Matthew, in verses 1 and 2, the first two verses in the 24th chapter of the Gospel according to St. Matthew, and Jesus went out and departed from the temple. And his disciples came to him, for to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left here one stone upon another, that shall not be thrown down. While fundamentally, of course, it is true to say that the state of the world and of mankind in sin is always the same, it is nevertheless equally true to say that history shows very plainly and clearly that different eras and epochs different periods in the long history of the human race, accentuate and emphasize certain different aspects of this one great common and universal problem. Now, that is something I say that surely must be abundantly plain and clear to all of us from a mere superficial reading of history the great, common, universal, constant need, and yet the obvious variations. Now there can be no question, I think, at all, that at the present moment, the outstanding question, the question which is forcing itself upon our attention, upon the attention of all people who think at all, whether they're Christians specifically or not, Is this whole question of history, the question of the story of the human race, the question, if you like, of what exactly is happening in this process of history in which we are all involved, and what exactly is its meaning? This, I think, above all the other problems, and there are many others as we all know, but this, I think you'll all agree, is the outstanding problem. Now, let me illustrate what I mean by putting it to you like this. This is an age, surely, above everything else, of a transition, an age of change, an age of mighty convulsions and violent movements. It's an age which is characterized by the changing of orders, changes which affect the nations politically, economically, industrially, and in every other respect. Compare, for instance, or contrast, rather, This uh, time in which we live, this present age, this present moment, with uh, what obtained, say, a hundred years ago, think of those halcyon days, as they're generally called, and rightly called, of that mid-period in the reign, that long reign of Queen Victoria. How settled everything seemed to be. How safe there had been, it's true, the Napoleonic Wars, but they had ended in... 1815, and having got rid of that particular problem, it did indeed look as if the world was going to settle down into a condition of settled peace. And as far as people could make out, there was nothing that could possibly disturb this. The orders seemed to be settled, and the whole world seemed to be in a kind of peace. Well, now compare and contrast all that with the days in which You and I live and you see the contrast immediately. Everything today seems to be in the melting pot. The whole world seems to be upside down. Things that were unthinkable a hundred years ago have literally happened in our day and in our own generation. There is no doubt at all about this. Everybody's agreed about this. We are living in one of the great climactic periods of history where everything, as it were, is, as I say, thrown into the melting pot again. And men and women are beginning to ask and to wonder, what is coming out of it all? What is the meaning of it all? What is this process in which we seem to be involved? And I put it like that deliberately for this reason. It is so evident and clear that we, as human beings, are involved in a process. Nobody claims that what is happening is being directed by men. Men are used, of course, as instruments. But what is happening today is not the result of some human planning. We are all conscious of some power behind men, something at the back of it all that is manipulating us and all our movements and our activities, whether we are individuals or whether we are as as nations. And the result is, I say, that the supreme question at the moment is this whole question of history, its meaning and its purpose. What is the future going to be? That's the question, isn't it? What lies ahead of us? What's the meaning of it all? What's the meaning of life itself, therefore? That becomes our ultimate question. Well, now then, there I think we'll all agree is the urgent matter that is facing the whole of mankind just at this very moment. And as life becomes more and more uncertain, scarcely a week passes now, but that something new uh, is put before us in the newspapers, some means of death, some way of destroying half the world or the whole world with just a little test tube and its contents, Now, the whole of our life is thus, as it were, utterly uncertain, so that all thinking people are contemplating this question, and doing so very rightly. What is it? What's happening? What's it all going to lead to? What's the ultimate of all this? Is there any rhyme or reason in life, are we just the subject of some mad, wild forces, over whom and over which nobody at all has any control. Or is it possible to say that amidst all the confusion and the alarms and excitement of the present times, there is nevertheless a clear line to be seen and a view of history that is adequate to explain the present and the past and to give us some insight into the future. Well now then, That is precisely the subject which is dealt with in this 24th chapter of the Gospel according to St. Matthew, which I am proposing to consider with you for two or three Sunday evenings. Because I say it is the most urgent question, the most relevant question, I am particularly anxious to be addressing and talking to men and women who say, that they don't want a gospel which, as they put it, is just some pie in the sky. They want something to help them to understand life and to live. Very well, my dear friend, I'm here to show you that there is nothing that really does that but this New Testament gospel. And that is why I'm calling your attention to this particular section. For here, our Lord himself deals with this most modern of themes, this most urgent of problems. Now, you remember the way in which he did it. It's most extraordinary. It is really fascinating. The story begins at the end of chapter 23. There was our Lord in the temple, and he was speaking to the people. And he ends, you remember, with these words, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them, that has sent thee. How often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens together under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desert, desolate. For I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth, till ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. And then chapter 24 begins, and Jesus went out and departed from the temple and he never went into it again. It was his last visit. He never entered it again. He was saying farewell to it and he was pronouncing his judgment upon it. He says, behold, your house he is left unto you. Desolate. And then, as he walks out of the temple and walks away from it, we are told that his disciples, who had been with him, of course, but were walking behind him, they rushed on to him and said, Wait a moment, Master. His disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple, and they were magnificent buildings as I'm going to indicate to you. They pointed, they said, look here, look at the the buildings. What are you saying? They said, did we understand you correctly when you said that uh, this building is going to be a desert? It's going to be made desolate, but uh, master, just look at them. And they indicated the greatness and the grandeur and the magnificence of the buildings. And then our Lord said unto them, See ye not all these things, the very things that they were indicating to him? Verily I say unto you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And then they went on walking and they began climbing up the Mount of Olives, which was opposite the temple. The temple was on a hill and the Mount of Olives was opposite. And there we understand they had another magnificent view of the temple because the sun was setting and it was shining on the temples, a sort of spotlight upon the temples. The setting sun illuminating it with its red blazing glory, bringing out the colors and the magnificent spectacle. And as they were there, the disciples again came to him privately and said, Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world or the end of the age? And then our Lord proceeds to address them and to explain something of what he means. Well now then, this is the question that is before us. And you see, in dealing with these questions of these disciples, our Lord proceeds to do two things. He tells them about the future of the temple and of the city of Jerusalem, and the destruction of both. And then he goes on to say that that is but a kind of small picture of what is going to happen eventually to the whole world when he comes back again into the world at the end of the age. In other words, what we've got here is this. We've got our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ looking into the future, making a prophecy, indicating the course of history and especially dealing with the end of history. Now, surely, there was never a statement in the Scripture that was more directly opposite to our present condition than just this very matter that we are looking at. In this age of bewilderment and confusion, here is a statement that surely demands our most urgent attention, and as I have been saying already, I would say again, surely, my dear friends, as we feel increasingly the uncertainty of our life in this world, the precariousness of our old hold upon life, and the dread possibilities that are confronting us, which make us say we are here today and gone tomorrow. And when men who are far removed from Christianity are talking about the end of the world, the final explosion that's going to destroy everything, and mankind committing mass suicide, as we are in such a situation, what can be of greater value to us or more urgently important for us than to consider this tremendous statement. Now, this, this statement that is recorded in this 24th chapter of Matthew's Gospel is notoriously an extremely difficult one, because in this one statement our Lord deals with the two subjects. He deals with the destruction of Jerusalem and the Temple. He also deals with the end of the age. And there are times when it's almost impossible to tell which of the two things he has most prominently in his mind. Fortunately for us, that rarely doesn't matter. Because what he certainly is teaching is this, that it is the same principle that works in the one as in the other. The destruction of Jerusalem and the temple is, as I say, a pale adumbration, a foretelling of this final cataclysm and destruction, which is to come with respect to the whole world. Very well, there are certain things in this chapter which are not plain and clear. I'm not going to direct your attention to them. This is no time for theorizing. There are people who understand it all. They can explain everything. Well, I don't envy them because I know they're wrong. And we are told not to do the very thing they do. I'm not going to deal with these things. This is no time, I say, for speculation. I'm concerned about what our Lord himself was so clearly emphasizing, namely the big principle that govern both events and that really indicate to us the way to live in such a period of transition and uncertainty, with judgment in the very air, and the whole of life so precarious. Very well. Now then, this evening, I want to look at what we may call the introduction to all this. And it is to me a most fascinating thing. The very introduction to this incident, which we have in these two verses, the first two verses, it seems to me is a very perfect portrayal of the gospel of Jesus Christ coming to the world, coming, if you like, to the modern men. I see the modern world represented very perfectly by these disciples. How often did they take up that role? They did it quite unconsciously. Thank God for the gospels with their details. How frequently did these disciples make fools of themselves by asking ridiculous questions? Thank God they did, and that we know they did, because we are equally foolish. And we ask exactly the same questions today. Here they are, then, and they represent, I say, the modern men, if you like, the world, listening to the gospel. The gospel is spoken by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And what is the effect of the gospel upon them? There's no difficulty about answering that question, is there? The effect of the gospel upon them is to surprise them, is to amaze them, is to astonish them. He seems to be saying things that are incredible, things that are impossible. Things that surely are beyond the very bounds of the remotest possibility. Here he is in the temple, you see. And he looks at it and he says, Behold, your house is left unto you. Desert. Desolate. Desert, they say. These buildings, the temple, the thing is impossible. Master, they said, have another look at them. Realize what you're saying. And on he speaks. And the more he says, the more amazed and astonished they are. Oh, I'm stopping with this just for a moment in order, you know, just to say this very simply. If the gospel of Jesus Christ hasn't come to you as a surprise, you've never heard it. You don't know it. It's the most astonishing thing in the world. It's unlike everything we've ever heard or anything we ever shall hear. This gospel, is so essentially different from everything we've ever thought or expected or imagined or anticipated, that when we first hear it, we say, this is impossible, it can't be. But, such it is. And the surprise and the astonishment of these disciples, which led them to put their questions, is the surprise of every human being, that realizes for the first time exactly what the gospel is saying. Very well, what does it say? What is the cause of the surprise? What is there about this that is so amazing? I think I can put it to you in the form of three principles. The first principle is this. The gospel amazes us and astounds us. Because, in the first place, it pronounces the doom and the destruction of all that man regards as great. That's its first pronouncement. The doom and the destruction of everything that man regards as great. Now, of course, that is what our Lord had been doing here with regard to these temple buildings. The disciples are listening to him. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate, desolate. And they say to one another, what's he talking about? What is this? His teaching used to be so wonderful. Sermon on the Mount, ethics excellent, and all his miracles. But now he's talking about the destruction of this Let's go and point it out to him. Let's go and tell him. So they went to him, and they said, See, look at the buildings of the temple. And you know, they were very wonderful. Mark, in his account of this incident, uh, describes the buildings like this. He says they were great building. And they were. They had been built out of wonderful, white, strong stones. The measurement of some of these stones uh, was something like this. They were 40 feet by 12 feet by 20 feet. Huge slabs, masses of white stone, a kind of limestone. And they'd been carved and cut to perfection and there were large numbers of them. Then there were some of them that were even, we understand, 85 feet long. One man once said that any man who'd never seen this Herod's temple had never seen a great and a magnificent building. It was one of the greatest buildings in the whole world. And in addition to all this solidity and this massive character, it was built, you remember, upon a rock. And not only that, there were other beautiful stones that had been added as a kind of ornamentation And various other offerings had also been added. The temple, in other words, was one of the great spectacles of the world. There was nothing that these people were more proud of than the temple buildings. And so the disciples, they came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. Of course, he'd been in there many a time and had seen them as often as they'd seen them. But why do they want to show him? Well, they want to show him the temple and the buildings and their character because of what he's just said. Well, what are they emphasizing? Oh how typical they are of men as he is in this world. You know those old disciples were doing the very thing that men has been doing, especially during this present twentieth century. What were they doing? Well they were pointing to the things of which they made their boast and of which they rejoiced. Look at them, they said. Look at the temple, look at the buildings. And what do they want him to see? Well, they want him to see man's achievement. Look at the temple. There's nothing like this temple. Think of the men, of the men who built this temple. Think of the ingenuity, think of the ability, think of the skill that has gone to the building of such a building. That's what they were saying. They, as Jews, they were very proud of the temple. They made their burst in the temple. And, you see, they call attention. Just stand back and look at it as in, and admire it. Well, how marvelous man is that he can erect such a building. You see, mankind has been doing that all his all through its long history, hasn't it? You remember how they built a tower of Babel at the very beginning? It, they said the same thing about that. It was a tower that was to go up into heaven. At last, man was so wonderful, you see, He'd so perfected his skills and his crafts that at last he can build a building that goes from earth to heaven and standing on the top, man will be able to see into heaven. Man's achievement, Tower of Babel. Do you remember reading about a great king called Nebuchadnezzar, a great king in Babylon? And he one day stood back and did the same thing. This great Babylon which I have built well, I mustn't keep you. Hasn't this been rather a favorite occupation with mankind during this present century? Oh, it still is, of course. Man's achievement. Wonderful. Look what he's made. Look what he's done. Look what he's discovered. Look what he's invented. Look at the bridges he's built. Look at the use he's made. Of science. Look at the way he can fly. Look at him breaking the sound barrier. Man. Man's achievement. How magnificent. How truly wonderful. There's no limit to it. Stand back, says mankind, and look at it. Don't spend your time in a miserable chapel. Go and look at what man is capable of. Look at man's ability, his subtlety, his ingenuity. What a piece of work is man. How infinite in faculty. There's nothing he can't do. So look around, they say, and see what man has produced and what man has achieved. Study medicine. Look at their discoveries. Look at physics. Go to art, literature, drama, everything. Man, what a wonderful creature he is. How magnificent are his efforts and his production. And then, as I say, in addition to thus admiring and looking at man's ability and man's achievement, They admire also in it its sheer beauty and its greatness and its glory. It isn't merely human ability that's being worshipped and admired. It's the result of this ability. To sum it up, I can put it very simply. This is what's called civilization. Civilization. As the temple was the result of the achievement of men in that respect at that time, So we stand back and we look at civilization. My word, we say, how we've advanced, how we've improved, how we've gone forward, how we can look back on our forefathers and feel sorry for them in their backwards. What wonderful things man has done. And here is his achievement up to date in the 20th century. And we look at the wealth and the largeness and the glory and the bigness and the magnificence of it all, our cities, our trade, our communications, and all that we've done, I say, in the arts and the sciences, how wonderful it all is. And as these disciples asked our Lord to stand and look at it, you and I are being invited constantly to look at it today. The newspapers are asking us to look at it. The books are asking us, It's a self-admiration society, mutual admiration society. What glory we've achieved! How magnificent has been the result of our endeavor. And then, of course, and this is perhaps the most material point of all, they were asking him to look not only at its magnificence and its beauty and the perfection of its construction but they were asking him especially to look at its durability durability founded upon a rock these enormous foundation stones these terrific slabs these corner stones all these look at it they said durability is the characteristic of this temple did we hear you saying your house is left unto you desert look again they said can't you see how solid it is? Can't you see how, Im- how movable it is? This isn't a tent that can be knocked down by a hurricane. This is a temple. Look at the stones, men. Look at their color. Look at their shape. Look at their positions. Look at everything. Durability. This is everlasting. Nothing can upset this. Oh, I mustn't keep you this evening. But I think you realize what I'm talking about, don't you? If there was one thing the Victorians, especially the late Victorians and the Edwardians, were particularly proud of, it was this element of durability. Oh, I could illustrate it in many ways, couldn't I? The empire on which the sun never sets. This is men's achievement. These solid achievements. Life fixed, settled. Man developing in his mind and understanding and his intellect, too wise ever again to fight. Never be another war, of course not. The thing's monstrous. All that's finished with. We've got a durable, safe, solid society. The world, at last, has come to its own. That was the thought. That was the philosophy. What was thought to be completely impossible was the kind of hurricane that would shake the very foundations and throw everything, as it were, into the melting pot. Look at the temple. Its chief characteristic is its solidity, its durability, its massive character. It's something that you can rely upon. And you see, there have been large numbers of people in this present century in the world who have looked like that upon life itself. They say, we don't need religion any longer, because we can understand our fathers when they lived a sort of nomadic life, moving about from one place to another, hunters, farmers, and of course they hadn't got even houses, they pitched their tents, but it was always moving. And then, you know, in that kind of condition with possibility of pestilences and storms and showers, well, life was rather uncertain and diseases and you hadn't got public health and things like that uh, to put an end to germs and infections. Well, of course, it's very natural that people in that kind of primitive life felt the need of somebody behind them, so they believed in gods and they asked their gods to bless them and to help them. And, of course, it was very understandable, but now, We've got rid of all that and we've settled down in life and the whole thing is solid and durable. We don't need God and they turn their backs upon God. Why acts of parliament could do what God used to do? Guarantee us a wage, guarantee us a house, guarantee us a hospital and treatment, guarantee us a burial, anything you like. Life's fixed, settled, solid, durable. Everything's all right. We've got nothing to do but to enjoy it. The solidity and the durability of the temple. And yet here is one who says, Yes, I am looking at them, and I ask you to look at them again. See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. He said that, you know, about the actual temple itself. He was speaking primarily of the temple. But he didn't stop at that. He goes on to say, that's going to happen to the temple. And you know, he said, that's going to happen to the whole world. Everything that man worships as being durable and lasting and safe, it's going to be smashed. The world passeth away with the lust thereon. The kingdoms of the world and all their glory are passing away, he says. He he puts it in great detail. you find it running as a theme right through the Bible. I simply give you one other quotation. Read your book of Revelation. And there you will find a word like this. Towards the very end of all, we are told there will be a great cry heard. And what will it be? It will be this, Babylon. Great Babylon is fallen. Babylon. Great Babylon. The pride of the nations, the mistress of the kings. Babylon that's conquered everybody and seems to have mastered the whole universe. Babylon. Great Babylon is fallen. And is become the dens of animals of various kinds and of descriptions. That is what our Lord is saying at this point. That all that man has put such confidence in, everything to which he has trusted apart from God, is going to be destroyed. It's doomed. And its destruction shall be absolute and final. One stone shall not be left upon another. It will be utter desolation and final desert. It's not surprising that these disciples were astonished. We are no longer surprised that they were amazed. But, my dear friend, have you realized that that is what this gospel tells you about this world in which you live? Have you realized that that is what it tells you about the most durable, solid, lasting things in life? It tells you they're all going to be destroyed, and we've seen a good number of them destroyed, haven't we, in our own time and generation. Crowns have fallen, kings have gone. Empires are falling. Empires are falling. Things which were to last forever are disappearing before our very eyes. Oh, anything in which man reposes a final confidence, and which he makes the special object of his pride and his glorying, apart from God, is doomed to final destruction. That's what he tells them. Well, now that is what he tells us. I say. But wait a minute, says someone. Do you expect me to believe that sort of thing? I'm ready to answer your question. I think it's a fair question. A man says to me, Why should I believe that? I know that that's the sort of apocalyptic that you have in your Bible. You've got it in your Old Testament, in the book of Ezekiel and other places. You've got it here. You've got it, of course, in that book of Revelation. But my dear sir, I'm no longer interested in that sort of apocalyptic, I can explain all that away. We no longer believe in that kind of thing. Why should I believe this? I say it's a very good and a very fair question. And I want to give you the answer. The second thing, in other words, that the gospel does is this. Having made its pronouncement upon all that we regard as so solid and durable, it then calls attention to him, to the speaker. Ah, before you accept in court the evidence of a witness, you first of all establish the credentials of the witness, don't you? And rightly so. The opposing counsel has a right to get up and to cross-examine. He tries to trip him and to catch him. If he knows anything about him, he brings it in. The credentials of the witness, of course. And never were they more important than just at this point. We are dealing, I say, with the most solemn thing that can ever engage our attention. So therefore I ask, who is this speaker? And this is what I find. I find he makes astonishing claim. Listen, here's a man, Jesus of Nazareth, who'd worked as a carpenter until the age of 30. Listen to him as he speaks and says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thee, even as a hen gathereth her chickens together under her wing, and ye would not. I. Here is one who says that he could have gathered Jerusalem and all her people together as children as a hen gathers her chickens under her wing and protects them and shields them against that threatening coming storm. He doesn't hesitate to speak of himself like that. And then he goes on to say further things about himself in this 24th chapter. He says he's going to come back again into the world, that he's going out of it just then, but that he's going to come back and he'll ride the clouds of heaven. He'll be surrounded by holy angels and he'll come in judgment. He, this speaker, this carpenter of Nazareth, this Jesus. But this evening I want to concentrate attention on one statement only that he makes. Have you noticed the confidence with which he speaks? Though he makes his preliminary statement and is challenged, as it were, by the disciples about what he said about their temple, they query it, they challenge it, they said, have another look at it, look at it, it's too durable, what you're talking about desert and desolation. Are you asking us to believe, they say, that this magnificent pile of buildings is going to be reduced to rubble and it is going to be ploughed? Look again, they said, and still... He not only makes his statement, but he repeats it with much greater force and certainty. There shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. Why should I listen to this speaker? Well, I've got one reason that's more than enough for me forever. It is this. What he said on that occasion which was probably about A.D. 32, actually, literally happened in A.D. 70. That very temple by the Roman legionaries was razed to the very ground It was utterly and entirely demolished. Not a stone was left upon a stone. It was reduced to rubble. The temple and Jerusalem were destroyed actually as a sheer fact of history. Some 38 years after our Lord had made this statement and this prophecy. Now, this is history, you see. We're dealing here with facts. This isn't a bit of fantasy. This isn't general teaching. Here is this speaker committing himself to an absolute statement. Even challenged, he repeats it. This massive, apparently eternal, everlasting, durable building is going to be so smashed that there won't be a stone upon a stone. It'll all be leveled to the ground. Ruination. Desolation. And what he said, though so utterly incredible to the disciples and to everybody else, though apparently so completely beyond the bounds of the wildest imagination and possibility, literally and actually happened. And therefore I say to you that if is right about this, why shouldn't he be right about the other? The impossible happened here. Why shouldn't the impossible happen again? Don't you see indications and adumbrations of it at this present time? My dear friend, the thing to do is to look at this speaker, to see his word verified, literally. Literally. And then to draw the inevitable deduction. What he says about this, he says, is going to happen to the whole world. He's right here. What if he's right there? So that brings me to my last point on which I say but a word, which is this. What then is the real inner meaning and significance of what he did say and what he goes on to say in the whole chapter? I just give you headings. Here it is. What matters here, he tells us, is principles, not times and dates and seasons. The disciples did what so many of us are anxious to do, and they said, Tell us, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? He didn't give them an answer such as they wanted. They wanted a fixed date on a calendar. He didn't give it them. He tells us, he tells us in Mark's Gospel, chapter 13, verse 32, that he didn't know that only God knows. But you see, that isn't the important thing. The important thing is the principles that he lays down in his teaching. What are they? Well, here they are, and let me put them very simply. One, anything that becomes the object of our faith and of our worship and of our final allegiance will be destroyed, even though it should happen to be the temple of God himself. You see, that was the whole tragedy of these Jews. That was the temple built for God. It was God who told them to build a temple where they might worship him, where they might take their offerings and sacrifices and worship him. It was God who commanded them to do that. And yet he's going to destroy the temple. Why? Because they'd worship the temple instead of God. Worshipping the magnificent buildings. Worshipping the stones. Worshipping its position. Worshipping Jerusalem. Worshipping themselves as a nation and as God's people. And the principle therefore is this. Anything that becomes the object of our worship, our faith, our adoration... will be destroyed even though it be the temple of God. What are you worshipping? What are you trusting to? What are you living for? There are men and women, you know, who live for this country and for this empire. There are men and women who live for themselves and their own names. There are those who live for their children, for their brilliance, for their understanding. There are men who worship their own wealth and possessions. There are men who worship a thousand and one things. I don't care what it is. It's going to be destroyed completely. Not a stone will be left upon a stone. Anything in which men repose a final faith will be destroyed before their eyes and it will be a complete and a desolating destruction. That's his first principle. The second is this. It is failure to believe in him that finally leads to this destruction. You see, it isn't that the things are wrong in and of themselves, but that they're put into the place of God. That's why he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which art on the point of being destroyed, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered... Uh, Thy children together even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wing. How often would I have done it? But you would not. And it's because you wouldn't that the destruction is going to come upon you. And you know the destruction, the final judgment and destruction of this world is going to take place because men and women don't believe in him and put their final faith and confidence in him. And his third principle is this one. There is only one way to save yourself from that destruction and to escape it. It is to believe in him. Had Jerusalem believed in him, she would never have been destroyed. How often there was the opportunity he can save from the destruction that is coming. And he alone can do so. How often would I, but he would not. Oh, man, O oh, woman, living in this uncertain, desperate age, with death round the corner, we know not when it may come, not only to us individually, but to masses of us, and perhaps the whole world itself. Are you going to be involved in that final destruction, which is everlasting, Remember? without intermission, without relief, without end? Are you going to be involved in that outside the face and the glory and the enjoyment of God? Are you? There's only one way to escape that. And that is to be unlike these people in Jerusalem. It is to believe in him. And to put your faith and trust and confidence in him who says, as we shall see later on in this very chapter, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. And the last thing I see here is this, and it's a wonderful lesson. The temple is going to be destroyed. But he doesn't seem to be very concerned about that. It doesn't break his heart that the temple is going to be destroyed. The Jews couldn't understand this. They were furious at this. The disciples couldn't understand. The temple destroyed this. What can we do? It is in the temple we meet with God. It is in the temple we take our burnt offerings and sacrifices and make our peace with God. If our temple is destroyed, what can we do? We are undone. No, no, he seems to say. The temple has served its purpose. The temple is to be destroyed. The temple will be destroyed. The temple can be destroyed. Why? I am the temple. The temple is no longer necessary. There is a way to God without the temple. I am the way to God. He's announcing in a magnificent manner that he himself is all the burnt offering and all the sacrifice and all that is necessary to appease the wrath of God. He is the high priest. He's the beast, the lamb of God that's offered. His blood has made the atonement The old temple is no longer necessary. It can go. Because the way from men to God is in him. He's all the temple was and infinitely more. He's in the heavenly temple. There representing us once and forever. Oh, as his servant Stephen later said when he was on trial... He said, how be it the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands, as the the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will ye build me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Don't worship the temple, he says to these people. Don't think that that is essential. It's all going to be smacked." But it's all right. I am the living temple. Come to me. And you'll be in the holiest of all. And you'll be in the presence of the living God. Oh, even a temple built and made with hands is destroyed. But there is a temple not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Come to this in Jesus Christ. And when the whole universe is destroyed, the cloud kept towers, the gorgeous palaces, yea, all which this globe shall inherit shall be dissolved and passed like the baseless fabric of our vision. When the elements will have melted with fervent heat, And the whole cosmos is renovated and evil destroyed out of it. This temple will remain and abide. Heaven and earth shall pass away. But my words shall not pass away. Beloved friend, in the awful utter insecurity of these present days... Have you looked at him? I'm not asking you to look at a building. I'm not asking you to look at a temple. I'm asking you to look at him, the son of God who tabernacled here on earth for a while and has taken human nature back with him and is there in glory. Look at him and have security. Realize that the final cause of all our ills is our failure to believe in him and to believe in God through him but realize that you can escape the punishment and the disaster and the doom that are coming if you but see and believe that he came into the world to save you from it and he saved you from it by taking even your sin upon himself and bearing its punishment. He's gone back to represent you in the presence of God. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be eternally safe. Amen.